Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History, continuing our epic World Cup-themed sweep through uh, 32 countries of the world that have qualified for the Football World Cup in Qatar. Uh, And today, Dominic, we come to, I would guess, the country that probably has the least history or at least the least, the, the least history that, is that, a uh, shocking, that, that perhaps the people piece. in this country have heard of, of, of any country, uh, and that is Costa Rica. Come on, Tom, you're not a favourite Costa Rican history. I am, I mean, I'm this is unbelievable. What? So, I was, Costa Rica is—I mean, Costa Rica is famous for its wildlife, isn't it? It is indeed. Uh, it's yeah. famous for its um, its uh, the its red-eyed tree frogs, <laughs> right? It's famous for its tremendous program of reforestation. Yeah, and it's, about, it's a great ecotourism destination. It is, somewhere. and of course, it's famous for its dinosaurs. On, right. Well, I don't know much about Costa Rican dinosaurs. Its, to be well, you do, you do. Uh, it's it's best known tourist attraction, Jurassic Park on oh, the good. Isla Nublar. Very good, very good. Um, but the right, history, so, I know nothing about it. Well, Tom, I tell you what, to make it accessible for you. Now, I know we said from the very beginning of this World Cup series that it absolutely wasn't going to be about football. But we will start with a tiny bit of football, just a tiny bit, I promise. So the 2014 World Cup, which was held in Brazil, Group D, England was were drawn in Group D, and they were drawn along with Italy, Uruguay, and Costa Rica. So a tough group, three former winners, England, Italy, and Uruguay. And lots of people in England said, well, this will be really hard, but at least we'll get three points against the Costa Ricans. Tom, do you know who finished top of that group? Costa Rica. They did. And do you know who finished bottom? England. England. <laughs> Absolutely right. Now, the thing is, we should have known better than to underestimate the Costa Ricans because that was actually their fourth World Cup and they have qualified for six. And that World Cup in 2014, they went on to reach the quarterfinals and they came within a penalty shootout of reaching the semifinals. Extraordinary accomplishment for such a small Central American country. And actually, when you step back from that and you look at it, Costa Rica, as I said, is in Central America, and their neighbours, so Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, Panama, none of them have had anything like the same kind of sporting success that Costa Rica have had. And generally, as you probably know, Tom, in sport, as in so much else, it's actually money and stability. Yes, and Costa Rica is a very stable country, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. So when you look at that, that list of countries, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, Many of those countries are some of the they're the most some of the most violent countries in the world. Higher homicide rates, higher imprisonment rates than anywhere else. They're politically very historically very unstable, and they're also extremely poor. But if you look at any ranking in Latin America, Costa Rica is not merely the safest country in Central America. So, as you said, an extremely popular ecotourism destination where you can be pretty confident that you won't get into any trouble. But it's one of the most affluent countries in Latin America. So it's comparable only really with Uruguay, Chile, and Argentina. So the, the, the countries right are there in the south. Now, when you look at it superficially, there's no obvious reason why that should be the case. Because in Costa Rica, they have the same Spanish language. They have the same customs. They have the same kind of ethnicity. 
as people do in Nicaragua and Honduras and so on. So what is the explanation? Why is Costa Rica such an outlier? And to answer that, Tom, do you know where we need to go back to? Uh, no, I, I literally know nothing about the history of Costa Rica. I, I, I cannot put into words how little I know about the history of Costa Rica because I know nothing, nothing, literally nothing. I'll be frank with you. You're going to be educated. <laughs> you don't even need to educate yourself because I will do it. Thank you. Uh, we are going back to the Costa Rican Civil War of the 1940s. Very exciting topic. Wow. So, okay. Okay. Who knew that they'd had a civil war? I suppose Costa Ricans do. But not many people were distracted people, by other stuff that was going on in the 1940s, yes. I suppose, foolishly. Yes. And their eyes were not on Costa Rica, where the main action was happening. So, okay, let's let's pull the camera right back. If you're in Costa Rica in the 1940s, where are you? So, at the bottom end of Central America, you've got Nicaragua to the north, you've got Panama to the south, and historically, this has been the backwater of backwaters. So, before the Spanish came to the Americas. Um, there were obviously people in Costa Rica, pre-Columbian people, but there weren't, you know, great empires and cities as there were in what are now Mexico and Peru. The Spanish called it the Costa Rica, the kind of the rich coast, basically um, from hope rather than anything else. They hoped there would be gold there. So like and Greenland, the Vikings exactly, calling it Greenland. Exactly. Right. Marketing scam. They hope there's gold and there's a tiny bit of gold, but there's not very much. And it takes them ages to conquer it. They basically don't conquer it for about 50 years. Almost all the indigenous people are wiped out through disease. And after that, basically, I mean, to be to cut a very long story short, nothing ever really happens in Costa Rica. It's very underpopulated. There's no native labor. So there's no point establishing a big kind of um, hacienda, the big kind of estates that people establish in much of Latin America. Uh, it's very poor. It's very sparsely populated. It's kind of peasants. Even the governor, the Spanish colonial governor, has to basically farm his own crops and even kind of look after his own garden because there aren't enough domestic servants and laborers and things to do it for him. And as you no doubt know, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, much of what's New, New Spain breaks away from Madrid. And so Costa Rica becomes independent, kind of despite itself. And it, it, it goes from one entity to another. It's part of the Mexican Empire. It's part of what's called the Federal Republic of Central America. At one point, some American adventurers even tried to take it over and fail. But it ends up as this kind of independent republic. And in the 19th century, the big thing that happens is coffee. So in the 1820s, the coffee trade really takes off. And actually, the biggest customer is Britain. So they start an Anglo-Costa Rican bank uh, for coffee growers. They, they build a railway from the coffee estates this, to the coast. Presumably, it's when the deforestation happens. Yeah, exactly. They're now busy repairing. Yes, absolutely. But even so, Costa Rica is still very underpopulated. No big cities, no big estates. There's not much to fight over. And so although it's it, it's there's a bit of turbulence in its politics, they're nothing like as turbulent as in Latin American countries where there's a lot of tension between big sit mercantile cities and kind of agricultural magnates between kind of liberals and conservatives, Blancos and Colorados, all that stuff that you get in the 19th century. The other thing about Costa Rica in the 19th century, before we get back to 1940, we often completely forget this in the English-speaking world. Latin America was often very progressive. So they abolished the death penalty in 1871. They had freedom of religion. They had separation of church and state and of the, and the separation of kind of the um, judiciary and the legislature and the executive. So they're quite forward-thinking. And their politics is not ideological. It's all about patrons and bosses, big bosses, which makes it very confusing. So that's all the sort of context. Now, 1940. So the president at the turn of the 1940s is a bloke called Rafael Angel Calderon. 
And he is a doctor. He's been educated, um, interestingly, in, in Belgium. So almost everybody in this story that we're going to meet has kind of European links somewhere or other. And he had come into, he'd become president as the sort of the, the friend of the, of the, of the coffee oligarchs, as they're known. So the people who control the coffee estate. A coffee oligarch. <laughs> yeah, you could be a what coffee What a thing oligarch. to be. Yeah. There's a lot of money in coffee. Um, but over time, like a lot of Latin American politicians in the same period, he becomes more and more populist and he sort of carries out welfare policies and. But he doesn't start wearing and- epaulettes or. No, he caps or anything, any of that stuff. He doesn't. He doesn't quite go that far. Now, in Costa Rica, there's a constitutional provision that you can't run for consecutive terms as president. So Mr. Calderon, Senor Calderon, can't run again. And he gets basically a, a sort of dog's body of his. So this is kind of Putin behavior. Yeah, Putin and Medvedev. Like Medvedev he gets a yeah. dog's body of his called Teodoro Picardo Mikalski to succeed him. Mikalski? Now, Mr. Yes, Mr. Picardo Mikalski, his mother is called Krakow in Poland. Right. And he, very impressively, Tom, he speaks English, Polish, and French, as well as some Russian, Italian, and German. I mean, who knew that Costa Rican politicians were such polyglots? polyglots. Yeah. Yeah. Does he speak any uh, American? Any Spanish. No, any American languages, kind of. Uh, What, Native American languages? Yes. Kind of like Nahuatl or something. Yes. (laughs) No. No. No No, no one speaks that in Costa Rica, so it'd be pointless for him to speak. Right, okay. Unless he was like a sort of J.R.R. Tolkien figure learning (laughs) it in his attic. Yes. Um, Anyway, he doesn't. But do you know what he is? He's a historian. Is he? I'm, I'm on his side. Well, are you though? Because I don't know. Like, like a lot of historians, he's a bit of a weed. He's a sort of classic, oh, okay. weak figure, Mister Picardo Mikalski. Now, as as we get further into the nineteen forties, uh, Costa Rica starts to become a little bit unstable because basically the the populist policies that Senor Calderon, the doctor, was was um, promoting, and then his his sort of flunky. Picardo is, is, they provoke great unrest among the kind of professional classes and the coffee people and so on. And as is so often the way in Latin America, they become increasingly kind of authoritarian to kind of defend those policies. And they basically rely, start to rely more and more on militias provided by the Communist Party. So you've got this kind of growing tension, sort of violence on the streets and so on. And the stakes are getting higher and higher. And, of course, the Cold War is in full swing by the late 1940s. So there's just a sense, you know, the temperature is rising. In 1947, there is a general strike called the Huelga de Brazos Caídos, the strike of fallen arms. I don't know why it's called that, but anyway, there's a sort of, uh, there's a general strike and the government is very cross about this and starts intimidating merchants and manufacturers and so on. So there's a real sense of pressure. And what really adds to this is that I said there were term limits, it's preventing consecutive terms. But Calderon, like Vladimir Putin, I suppose. Can now come back? It can come back in the next election in 1948. And, and, and what's the weedy historian making of this? He's just going to step aside in, in okay. weedy historian fashion, very, I suppose. Yeah. I know you're disappointed by this, I Tom. am disappointed. I mean, would you do this? Maybe you would. No, no, I wouldn't. I would learn the lesson of history. and I, No, I would learn the lesson of history and strike, and I'd strike hard. <laughs> Okay, well, he didn't. Because that, 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 Dominic, that's what history teaches. It does. I've told you many times, the lesson of, your, of history is eat your neighbours before they eat you. That's the lesson of history. Anyway, listen, Calderon is going to run again. And everybody knows this and everybody knows he's desperate to win. And his opponents, who are the sort of conservative middle classes and so on, and the people who are worried that he's too authoritarian, they put up as their candidate a newspaperman called Otilio Ulate Blanco. And everyone knows it's going to be very 
close and contentious. And as in the lead up to election day, on the 8th of February, 1948, there are all kinds of dark rumors that there's going to be fraud and there's going to be ballot stuffing and all this. The, the, the result is announced. And the newspaper bloke, Olate Blanco, has won 55% of the vote and Calderon has won 45 So the big man, the populist, who everyone thought was going to be the quasi-dictator, has actually lost. Like and Tom, um, Alex Salmond in the... Scottish independence referendum. That, that wasn't the analogy that I, I was going to look for because he takes he you know he takes the stage and he says this is the mainstream media fake news. Well, very I, salmon. I, I haven't lost at all. There's been all kinds of fraud in this election. I warned about it beforehand, and I'm not going to accept the results. And mysteriously, the day after the election, a suspicious fire destroys a lot of the ballots. So quite Trump, quite Trump. Exactly. Tom, finally, yes, that's what I've been, uh, yes, I mean, I've so- probably been very hard on, on Calderon um, here, <laughs> but I thought, you know, why not? <laughs> so a fire destroys a lot of the ballots. Uh, so Congress, which is controlled by Calderon supporters, cancels the elections three weeks later, throws them out. Mm-hmm. And Picardo, the weedy historian, says he'll carry on as, as president for the time being until they well, that's decide not weedy. what to do. That's no, well, he's doing what he's told. He's doing what he's told by Calderon. So there's absolute outrage at this, Tom. Complete outrage. And uh, Ulate, the newspaperman, is outraged. He says, I've been, I've had the election stolen from me. And he's going around. He, he goes to his friend. But what's the point in being a newspaperman if you can't? Well, his newspaper's obviously you... announcing yeah. this. Yes, of course. I mean, f- you know, fake news. Well, I think the Costa Rican Civil War is definitive proof that people who think their mainstream media control politics are wrong. Tom. Right. Okay. Anyway. This, this newspaper bloke, he goes to his friend, Dr. Valverde. I don't know anything about him, so I can't provide any, any form of pen portrait. Let your imaginations do the work with Dr. <laughs> Valverde. I imagine to- him, he has a, a little pencil moustache and faintly sinister kind of Nazi glasses. <laughs> and he does experiments on amphibians <laughs> for fun. But ultimately, I think a kindly man, Tom. No, a family so- man. <laughs> no. no. He's the embodiment of evil. <laughs> no, no. Is, that's is not, not how I imagine Dr. Oh, is he a goodie? Is he goodie? <laughs> yeah. You've got the sides completely muddled up. Oh, I know nothing about this. I'm just you going. Know who the good guys are. <laughs> you, okay, okay. You're out of your depth, right. Tom. You don't know okay. who the good guys are in the story no, at all. Right. Dr. Okay, well, well, is it's, it's, he's very kind to children, <laughs> gives sweets to the homeless. Okay. <laughs> he's a great man he's a great right. but okay. this is but this is a t- dark day for dr valverde because dr valverde tom is hosting um do you remember who atelier ulate blanco was yes he's the newspaper man yeah he's hosting him at he's a meeting robbed he's been robbed yeah, he's been robbed of the election atelier ulate blanco has gone to meet dr valverde. <laughs> <laughs> right and uh <laughs> But what's the significance the, of that? The, well, the police surround Dr. Valverde's house, Tom. Because they know he's evil. <laughs> Shots ring out and Dr. Valverde is shot in his own doorway. And Ulate Blanco escapes, but is later... Maybe it was for the best. ...captured. No, not for the best. So this is a sign that the, uh, the Calderonistas <laughs> are determined to do anything in their power to retain control of costa rica tom right but they have reckoned do you know who they've reckoned without a figure we've not yet mentioned but the greatest figure in costa rica's history 
Um, John Hammond. <laughs> what? John Hammond. Is that your set- suggestion? John yeah. Hammond? Who's John Hammond? Up, he sets up Jurassic Park. No, it's not him. They have reckoned without Don Pepe himself. <laughs> Jose <laughs> Figueres Ferrer, a name Tom to conjure to with down the ages. in the world of Costa Rican <laughs> Costa Rican historiography. So tell me about him. Do we know about well, him? I think he is such a big figure, and he is the father of modern Costa Rica. We should absolutely take a break to compose ourselves and come back after the break to talk about Don Pepe. Okay. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kaye, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History, where we are talking about the Costa Rican Civil War, a subject I know literally nothing about. Um, But Dominic, you know lots about it. And you are building up to um, perhaps the most exciting moment in this already, I have to say, thrill-filled episode. And you're you're introducing um, Mr. Big, Senor Grande, Don Pepe. Don Pepe. Jose Figueres. The big man of Costa Rican history, Tom. So um, I told you before the break, if you were listening, as I hope you were, that all the people in this story had European connections. And this is yes. certainly true of Don Pepe. His parents were from Barcelona, and he'd been born in Costa Rica in 1906, just after they immigrated to Costa Rica. And he, his Catalan identity was always very important to him. He's very independent-minded. Is Figueres. Like the Catalans tend to be. Yes, exactly. Well, that's why he sort of says, I'm, I'm Catalan. I'm always very Catalan. I'm very strong-willed. Um, he's sent to a, a seminary. doesn't like it at all. He drops out in the 1920s. And he goes off to Boston to study at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. But 
He's studying hydroelectric science at MIT, and he finds it, unsurprisingly, I think it's fair to say, very boring. Yeah. Uh, so he drops out of that as well, and he puts himself through a, a, a curriculum he's devised himself of reading at the Boston Public Library. And he reads Cervantes, he reads Kant, he reads Nietzsche, and he reads H.G. Wells. So he's a, he's a clever man. He comes back to Costa Rica. He becomes a big um, coffee grower, and you will delight you to hear, Tom, he is a manufacturer of rope, which I know oh, from God. your reading of Patrick O'Brien, you're very <sighs> interested in. Okay, I'm against him. So he, he is, a, is a philanthropist. He's a very kindly kind of Victorian paternalist employer. He builds houses for his workers. Okay, no, maybe, he's, maybe I'm not against him then. Yeah, exactly. You were harsh on Dr. Valverde, yes, I was. who's now dead, and you cannot afford to be harsh on Don Pepe. Okay, I'm, I'm all for Don Pepe. He establishes a nice vegetable farm for his workers. Oh, FIFA Don Pepe. A dairy with free milk. So what's not to like? He's a great yeah. fellow. Anyway, uh, he's a kindly man, I think it's fair to say, to his, to his sort of workers. But in the early 1940s, he had become increasingly alarmed by the authoritarian direction of the Calderon administration. And he had, in fact, been exiled for two years in Mexico because he'd said... This, this sort of um, authoritarian president is going to end up as a communist, and you should watch out. He comes home, and in the run-up to that election, he had become a major figure in something called the Caribbean Legion. And the Caribbean Legion is a kind of pro-democracy group across the Caribbean. They are very opposed to the, the, the dictator Somoza in Nicaragua and Rafael Trujillo, the horrible dictator in the Dominican Republic. And one of their members, Tom who you'll definitely have heard of, and we won't need to provide an invented pen portrait of, is a young man called Fidel Castro. Okay. He's a member of the Caribbean Legion. So they, the Caribbean Legion think, basically, if we can have Costa Rica as a democratic base in Central America, then we can spread democracy to the rest of Central America. And Figueres, Don Pepe, is very keen on this. And when he hears about the murder of Dr. Valverde, not as you claim an experimenter on frock, <laughs> but, uh, but a lover, a, a kindly, kindly yeah, gentleman. Well, I think it's fair, more accurate to say a man of whom we know absolutely, <laughs> you and I know yes. absolutely nothing. But maybe, maybe, but Dominic, maybe, maybe we have some, who knows, perhaps some Costa Rican listeners. And if we yeah. do, or we have any, anybody who knows anything about Costa Rican history, they could tell us. Yeah. I can assure you, I have scoured what, few books there are on Costa Rican history, and I can find nothing about Dr. Valverde. Okay. Well. Anyway, listen, <laughs> Figueres decides, this is my chance, basically. Figueres is Don Pepe, just to, just to be It's Don Pepe, clear. yes. Yeah. I'll call him Figueres from that throughout. Let's put Don Pepe because he sounds too much like a pizza or something. <laughs> he sounds like a, a brand of sherry, doesn't he? He does. He's actually not a pizza at all. That would be Italian. He's a, he's a brand of sherry. He's not. He's, he's Figueres. He's a very impressive person. Figueres says, right, this is it. We're going to have to trigger... Um, an uprising to, 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 you know, the election has been stolen and all this stuff. And he's raised this little army. And it's a really weird kind of ragbag of anti-communists, of people who represent the coffee interests, but also people on the left who are, you know, they're, they're, they're left wing, but they're pro-democracy and they're suspicious of the kind of, um, of the authoritarianism of the Calderon regime. So this little national liberation army, um, it, it fights its way into the second city within a, a couple of weeks. So the, the fighting sort of breaks out in March um, 1948. And by the 20, 12th of April, they're in Carthago, which is the second largest city. They're kind of carrying all before So them. Carthage. 
Yeah, named after Carthage. And, and so this is really becoming quite a theme of our Carthaginian of our theme. World Cup episodes, isn't it? We've had yeah. Dido, we've had uh, Ganabal, and now... So maybe when the World Cup is over, we can re- re- repackage this series, Tom, as a... Yes. <laughs> the world history of Carthage. Carthage around the world, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So basically, the support for the uh, government is melting away, and they're increasingly reliant on the communist, on this communist militias. So the capital is San Jose, and the communists are kind of holed up in the capital. And the question is, are they going to hold out while Figueres' little army are approaching? Or are they going to accept defeat? And at th- so this point that the United States is really crucial, because, of course, the Amer- this is the Cold War. The Americans are very, very anti-communist. And the Americans basically make it, cl- make it plain to the government. They say, if the communists end up properly taking over, we will send in troops from Panama. So they mobilize. They have troops on alert in the canal zone in Panama ready to step in. And Picardo, the weedy historian, who's still president. Oh, he's still there, is he? He's still hanging around. He's a bit of a figurehead. He sends a message to Calderon and to the communists. And he says, listen, it will be an absolute catastrophe if we have street fighting in the capital. Because as a historian, he would know that, wouldn't he? That would be a lesson of history that he would draw. And if he hadn't been a historian, yes, he would. He, he could have said street fighting would be brilliant. <laughs> so this is a victory in some ways for history. It's a vindication yes. of history. I think it is. So, and he says, basically, the United States will step in and this will be a disaster. We can't have this. So the Picardo, the communists and Calderon, they all agree they will give up. Okay. Calderon goes off to um, Nicaragua with Picardo, the historian. So the doctor and the historian are gone. The communists just sort of melt away after a bit of fighting. On the 24th of April, so, you know, what is it? What are we, less than two months after the, the whole business began? Uh, Figueres' forces enter San Jose and they take over the government. So not big death toll, <laughs> about, um, about 2,000 people. Is that the war it? lasted 44 days. Well, wait for it, wait for it. So just to tell you what happened to all the characters. Picardo, the historian, he stayed in Nicaragua forever. He never came back. That was the end of him. Calderon, the doctor, he goes. To, he's in exile in Mexico where, he, bizarrely, he just goes back mm-hmm. to being a doctor again. Then he comes back to Costa Rica he runs for president unsuccessfully and ends up as an ambassador to Mexico from Costa Rica, which is quite a sort of, yeah, that's quite a benevolent outcome. Now, that yeah. is a clue about what happens to Costa Rica. Because actually, everything that we've talked about till now is sort of standard Latin American stuff, isn't it? Clues yeah. and Communists. people called Don Pepe and yeah, yeah. all that sort yeah. of thing. But what actually happened is what happens that is the difference. What happens now? Because Figueres, he takes power for 18 months and he basically says, I will take power and then I'll give it up. I have no ambition to be a dictator. This is the guy we talked about as the Catalan who read Cervantes and was the sort of kindly rope employer. Mm -hmm. And in his 18 months, he gives women the vote. He abolishes the sort of reading requirements, you know, the literacy requirement um, for voting. He confirms the existing welfare legislation. He nationalizes the banks. He writes a new constitution. He expands public education. He gives citizenship to the children of uh, black immigrants, which had previously been denied them. And he, I, but he does one thing above all for which Costa Rica really is famous. He abolishes the army. Oh, and yes. Costa Rica is still yes. the only country yes. of its size with no army. Um, and why does Figueres do it? Well, he basically, 
he knows that the army is sort of untrustworthy, I suppose. He's frightened maybe of a coup, so and he knows that the army was working for his his adversaries. But also there's a kind of idealism there. He basically says, if you don't have an army, then you won't have more coups and you won't have civil wars. And he's also, crucially, I talked about his reading in the Boston Public Library in H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells, in his book, The Outline of History, had predicted a future with no armies. And he had said, a world with no army, this sort of pacifist world would be a better one. Figueres genuinely believes it. And uh, that is a, that is a kind of much nobler way to not have an army than Qatar that we talked about in our first episode, which also doesn't have an army. So there's yeah. a, there's a parallel. Um, and then he and then does he give up power? So he gives up power. He he literally walks away. So he's like he's like he's like Sulla, the a bit like the Sulla, Roman dictator, but but obviously less bloodthirsty. Sulla kept coming back, didn't he? No, Sulla, Sulla laid down his oh, dictatorial yes. powers and then went off and died of intestinal worms but i mean he, he killed a lot of people but it sounds like don pepe don pepe didn't kill anybody no he's a much more benevolent figure he walked away and then just became a democratic politician so he actually had two more terms as president what an admirable man in the 1950s and 1970s he had such an interesting sort of political identity he was always close to the united states because of course he studied in boston yeah reading uh, all that stuff in the library he was very careful so he 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 would sort of criticize them in public and in private, saying, he used to say, your hands are not clean to fight communism if you don't also fight dictatorships. And he's, he's, he's not wrong. Um, he took money from the CIA and the KGB, <laughs> interestingly. So he's not in, yeah. He's canny. Not only a benevolent man, but a canny man, yeah. He's a canny man. When uh, In the 70s, when he's quite an old man and president again, uh, some Nicaraguans hijacked a plane in San Jose in 1971. And when Figueres heard about it, he went straight, he was five foot three, so very short. He went straight to the airport himself with a submachine gun and pointed it at the uh, at the hijackers okay. in the cabin until they surrendered. So he's a brave man. So he's benevolent, he's canny, and he's a have-a-go hero. He is. He sounds one of the most remarkable political leaders of the late 20th century. Apparently he... he um, he went to a Central American summit where he was he was held in low regard by other Central American strongmen for all of this behaviour. And he went, <laughs> but and at a Central American summit in 1973, he said he said apparently said to, ruined the atmosphere apparently by his own description. He spoiled it for them all by saying to them, "Isn't it odd that all you bastards are generals and I'm the only civilian, but I'm the only one who's ever fought and won a war?" He sounds great. He, I, I love him. I love him. And uh, to, to say it again, the thing I'm loving about this series is learning about all kinds of things I knew nothing about. I think he is, my, Dominic, I think he's my favourite 20th century Hikey. South American leader. Well, Central American leader. I think he is proof that political choices genuinely make a difference to countries' destinies. Because if you look at Costa Rica right now, it has the lowest crime, the highest literacy, the best healthcare, the greatest stability and indeed the best football team in Central America. And the best frogs. And the best frogs. And it's still, of Despite course, Despite the efforts no... of the evil Dr. Valverde. <laughs> <laughs> Poor old Dr. Valverde. I, I, I like to think that you'll get angry letters from his descendants, Tom, about your <laughs> shamefulness. But I'll tell you, that I'll end with Apologize this. Do you, know, do you know what they did with the army? Do you know what's happened? At, um, well, of course you don't, because you, you've said yourself, you don't know about Costa Rican history. So they had a public ceremony when they abolished it in 1949. And they had a public ceremony and the commander in chief in public took the key to the army headquarters and he handed it to the minister of education, 
who announced that it would henceforth become a museum. Wow. And it still is. Swords beaten into school textbooks. Exactly. So there is Costa Rican history. Amazing, Dominic. Wonderful. Uh, I, I, I honestly thought this was going to be probably the most boring episode. I completely apologise. That was a brilliant episode. So thank you very much. I think the highlight of that was your discussion of poor old Dr. Valve. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, I hope that uh, that everyone else listening to enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, we'll be back with more World Cup-related historical shenanigans tomorrow. Bye-bye. Adios. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. <laughs>